0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us a chance to uh, check out some of the recent guests that we've had on JM and the AM. We're going to start with Rabbi Stephen Weil. Rabbi Weil of the OU uh, is an expert on a uh, an episode whose anniversary we celebrate this week, the raid on Entebbe. 41 years ago this week, the 4th of July of 1976, the raid on Entebbe, the incredible heroic uh, operation by the Israel Defense Forces, took place in Uganda. Rabbi Weil helps us recount this incredible, extraordinary, miraculous event in this conversation. Rabbi Stephen Weil and the Raid on Entebbe on this edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, it's the end of June. In fact, it's the final Thursday of June 2017, and that means that uh, next week it'll be the 4th of July. And the 4th of July, we know what it means for those who are Uh, residents and citizens of the United States of America, but for us, the Jewish community, the 4th of July over the last 40-plus years, has even extra significance. It was Sunday, the 4th of July, 1976, when the Entebbe Raid took place. Those of you who are, uh, let's see, I guess, under the age of 35, (laughs) Uh, um, or or a variety of ages, actually, Um, I suggest you take the time to learn about the miraculous episode that we call uh, Operation Jonathan, uh, Mivza Yonatan, uh, at one time known as Operation Thunderbolt, uh, when the Israeli Israeli army went into Entebbe, Uganda, and saved hostages who were being held because they were Jewish at the old airport in Entebbe, Uganda. Rabbi Stephen Weil, who is, of course, Senior Managing Director at the OU, is also known has quite a reputation for being a uh, an Entebbe expert can tell us a lot about what happened 41 years ago next week. Rabbi Weil, welcome back to JM in the AM. It's an honor to be with you, Nathan. Thank you. I greatly appreciate it. I remember when it happened. Do you rem- I remember when it happened in terms of the episode itself. Do you remember when you became obsessed? If that's a uh, if that's the proper word with the Entebbe rescue.
1: Well, it it shaped me as a Jew, as a kid. I, I remember the experience, you know, the whole Jewish world was frozen that week. And then on July 4th, when the whole world was focused on America, when they announced the success of the raid, and what it did for us as Jews, what it did for Jewish pride, and what it did for us in terms of gratitude to Israel as a people, because here it was, and that's Menachem Begin saying a speech in the Knesset on Monday morning, the next day, that, you know... 40 years ago, I should say, he, he said actually 30 years ago, when selections were being made between Jews. I remember he spoke about he spoke about Dr. Mendigala and the German doctors. Right. Because who made the selections of Entebbe, Wilfred Burris, and, and Brigitte Kuhlmann? These were members of the infamous Bader Meinhof gang, who partnered with the PSLP. And they made the selection between the Israeli and Jewish passengers on one hand and others on the other. And he said, then there was no one, no one to save us. And he said, now God gave us the ability for the first time in 2200 years, God gave us a nation, an IDF, where if any Jew in any place is persecuted, is humiliated, or is in a state of, of travail, God has given us the ability to protect ourselves. And he talked about the difference.
0: You know,
1: and, and it's very powerful coming from Bacon, because he had lost everyone in his family in the
0: war. Those who were not Jewish, uh, those who were not Israeli citizens, were released on day one at Entebbe? Actually
1: on Wednesday. The the, the hijacking took place on Sunday, and when Israel agreed for the first time in its history to negotiate with the PSLP, because at that point they didn't have a formidable military plan, what the, the Palestinians and Germans did was they released... All the other passengers, and and the ones they kept, there were 89 passengers that had Israeli passports, and there were four that were conspicuously looking Jews. So those 93 were kept, and to the credit of of David, his name was Barros. He was still alive at 92. He was the captain of the Air France flight. He insisted that he and every member of the crew, even though they were allowed to be released, they were going to stay with the Israeli and Jewish passengers. So 105 were kept, and on Wednesday of that week, everyone else was released. And that's really where the miracle began, because when Mossad interviewed all of these passengers as they came to Charles de Gaulle Airport, they were able to pick up certain pieces of information that enabled them to have the plan, what you referred to as Operation Yonatan.
0: Uh, Rabbi Steve Weil is with us, and Tebby, 41 years ago next week um tell me tell me something more about the Air France captain and crew deciding to stay now 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 that I'm no longer a kid <laughs> and I am an adult it it, it it is even more of an overwhelming thought when you think of people ready to essentially sacrifice their lives for people that they did not know just people they felt responsible for um what can you tell us in addition? regarding the decision by the Air France crew?
1: He, uh, the, the, the captain at the time, I think he was 52, so as a young man, he actually fought you know, in World War II as a pilot against the Germans. And uh, he, he felt, look, first of all, he was trained, but secondly, you know, he understood what this was all about because he had fought against the Germans. He was married to a, a German woman who herself was one of these Germans that was abhorred at what they had done to the Jews during World War II. Hmm. Do you think... So he's, do you, a, a spe, he's a special man. In fact, Yidil uh, Tahrunot, they call it Y-Net News, last year for the 40th, they interviewed him and his wife. And uh, he's a very, very special person. He actually maintained a relationship with, with various members of the, uh, the IDF in the aftermath of this. and In fact, Bibi Netanyahu went to him to thank him for what he had done.
0: Do you think that he got pushback from his crew regarding this decision?
1: It's hard to know. because, it, And the reason I say that is he claimed in the interview, which was a very noble thing of him, that this was something that the whole crew agreed to. Right. Whether it was or not, we don't really know the truth.
0: Right, understood. Um, and, Tebby, 41 years ago next week, or by Steve Weil is with us live via telephone. The um, the planning. Uh, say it again. I'm sorry.
1: The hashkacha in this story is it, it's a miracle in, in, on five levels. I mean, just to give you a couple of examples. sir.: that, you know, we call people a, a pat rack. You know, they, they never throw anything out. Right. When when golden may already in the 50s was sending water engineers to the black African countries to try to save them from starvation and famine. So Uganda was one of these countries they helped. And one of the people who was there was given it, as you mentioned, Nahum, it's, it was the old terminal of Entebbe Airport, but it was the original airport. So it was an Israeli firm that was given the architectural blueprints to bid on this, to make a bid on, the, on building it. They didn't get it. It was an Italian firm that built the airport. But he never threw anything out, and he had saved the architectural blueprints. So he brought them to the IDF, and on Wednesday, when the released passengers shared with them the description of the building, they realized that nothing had been changed from the original building. The entrances were the entrances. The stairwell to the second floor where the, where the Ugandan soldiers were being quartered was the same. The VIP lounge where the, the Palestinians were sleeping, that was all the same. So they, had, they could create a Hollywood blueprint and do a practice run on it. So they would at least have intelligence and know how to attack the building, and that that was one thing. The other thing was that, that every time Idi Amin had come to meet with the terrorists and to speak to the hostages, he came in a black stretch Mercedes limousine, followed by two Range Rovers of his elite soldiers. Well, they said that's that's the perfect surprise that we have. They went to the Department of Motor Vehicles in Israel looking for a black stretch Mercedes limousine. There wasn't one in the whole country. It turned out that there was an, uh, an Arab who lived in Jerusalem in the east part of Jerusalem who had an older model white stretch Mercedes limousine. So what are they going to do? They're going to come and tell me you know, they're doing a raid. They came with a story. You know, we've got a film crew. And we're making a movie. And it's costing the camera crew and the producers and the actors. We'll give you whatever you want. We'll need the car for a week. You know, we might tweak it. A little bit, but we'll promise you we'll give it back to you. So he laughed at them. He says, this piece of junk, this Ashfa, you can have it.
2: <laughs> what
1: happened? They didn't know what he meant. They get the car. It didn't start, so they had to put in a first starter. They did the practice run Friday night. It didn't start. They had to do an alternator, a second starter. They had to bring in a Mercedes mechanic. You know, They had all kinds of Mercedes buses in Israel, but not limousines. Had to bring in a mechanic. Then they had to quarantine him on the base because now he knew what it was. It was was hysterical. They painted it black. They put on the Ugandan flag, and that was part of it. I mean, uh, there's like three others. There was a whole group of of, of Air Force guys. A guy by the name of Shuki Shami. He's still alive. He's still in a very high position in the Israeli Air Force today. At the time, he was a child of survivors. A guy maybe 25 years old. They had just come back from Georgia. Martin Marietta, they, they they produced this thing called the Hercules C one hundred and thirty. You know the big cargo transport mm, plane. Right. They learned to fly these things. Well, the, it was the first time Israel had ever acquired something like that. They actually had a vehicle now of how to how to transport medical crews, jeeps, troops, etc. So they had the ability of something that had enough fuel to get them there. The problem was is They could get there flying under radar. They didn't have enough fuel to get back. Right. So they had connections with the Kenyans, and they called up. There were two members of the government they felt in Kenya that they could talk privately to. The Kenyans hated the Ugandans. Idi Amin had tried to, you know, foment revolution in that country. And they said to them, they said, look, the, the negotiations are going nowhere. The Palestinian, you know, we will not release any Palestinians from our prisons. who have Jewish blood on their hands who have killed innocents, and the Palestinians have said to us, "You don't dictate policies. We tell you who to release, not who to release." And it's going nowhere. And we may have to do a military raid, but the only way we can do this is if we can refuel. Well, Nairobi is literally, you know, by air is minutes. It's a few minutes from from Kampala, Uganda, where Entebbe was, so that. They asked them, and they, the Kenyans said, we've got to think about this. We'll get back to you. So hours later, this is Thursday, they called them back, and they said the following. Two conditions. Number one, you never called us. You never asked us. You'll have your LL people come and say there's a flight coming from South Africa that's got mechanical problems, and then we're going to tell the world what could we do. You know, it turned out it wasn't an LL flight. They said, fine, we, we can agree to that. Second condition, Idi Amin's got 11 Russian MiGs sitting there in Intendi Airport. Right. In two minutes, those 11 Russian MiGs will destroy our capital city. We're through. We have no way of defending ourselves because the world might believe us, but Idi Amin never will. And we can't, we can't tolerate an attack from Idi Amin. You've got to take out the Russian MiGs so now this turned into a military operation. And in fact, Shaul Mofaz, who at the time, like everyone else's name, was something that no one knew because this was all top secret, his job, and they had to bring these, these Humvees with RPGs attached to them, their job was to destroy the, the uh, Ugandan Air Force. So what, is, what choice did Israel have? And, and at that point, the man who was supposed to run the operation, Ehud Barak, who was the head of Sayer at Macau, Ehud Barak was taken off the, the mission on Thursday, sent to Kenya because of his relations with the Kenyans, and they called up Yoni Netanyahu, who was, he was down in the Negev working with soldiers, and he was put on to the job on Thursday. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to go on for too long, but there's, there's like literally five or six of these phenomena that all added up at the right time.
0: The MiGs were destroyed before, during, or after the, uh, the actual rescue.
1: After the hostages were
0: taken off,
1: from touchdown to takeoff in terms of the hostages, the goal, the plan was 60 minutes. It was 51 minutes. And the longest period of the 51 minutes was trying to get a count because right. people were traumatized and in shock. Right. And after that first plane took off, one of the latter groups of soldiers, which Shaul Mofaz was in charge of, they took out the Russian MiGs, and they were the last to take off from the airport.
0: And Yoni Netanyahu's uh, uh, death is uh, considered, I don't know, a fluke, an accident, uh, just exception in terms of the way the operation was going. Are those terms correct in describing the way he was taken out?
1: So I'll tell you, there's, there's more than one account to it. I'm going to tell you the account and I interviewed many people for this. This was the account that I understood to be the correct one. And, and I, can't, I can't guarantee this. I can't promise this. On Friday night, when they did a practice run, it was an absolute debacle. The security cabinet, who still did not approve the the plan until they were way into the air, until Shabbos afternoon, they said the definition of whether this is a success or not, the litmus test, is 25 dead, meaning between the hostages and the soldiers, if less than 25 are killed, this will be considered a success, if it's 25 or more, that was their, their red line. Right. Well, they did a practice run on Friday night, and it was an absolute debacle. Not only did the car not start, there was no element of surprise. So when the soldiers were put to sleep, you know, said get some sleep, we may be taking off tomorrow morning, Yoni Netanyahu and the squad commanders stayed up till 3.34 in the morning, and they redid the plan. Now, part of redoing the plan was they knew that there was glass windows. They had to have somebody sitting on the tarmac, which was Yoni running the operation. Right. He's a dead duck. Put, putting yourself out on the tarmac, your target practice for anybody in the tower. He knew he was setting himself up, exposing himself. But he, you had to have someone who could see the one group that was going into the east entrance, which is where there are always two terrorists you know, waiting at the east entrance, guarding the building. And there are always two terrorists on the west entrance, on the other side of the building you needed someone who's, who's commanding operations who can see all the different squads going into their specific locations, commanding and letting them know what's happening, where fire's coming from. So he set himself up in a way where he was exposed, as opposed to the rest of them that would have the camouflage of the building. Right. He gave his life knowing this. This was one of the tweaks that was made in the plan. You talk about Messiris Nefesh. He gave his life for the Jewish
0: nation. Unbelievable, and he knew he was doing it as well.
1: Yeah, he knew he was exposing himself to to to, to a sniper fire, but but they they felt that that was crucial. He felt it was crucial to make the operation run.
0: Unbelievable, uh, Mivtza Yonatan, Operation Jonathan, which until uh, the uh, in, until the death of Yoni Netanyahu was known as Operation Thunderbolt. The 4th of July, 1976, an amazing miracle with so many coincidences, quote-unquote, as Roy Weil has described. Uh, Do do you sometimes think what would happen if a hostage situation like that happened today, if if the identical circumstances were being played out in 2017 as opposed to 41 years ago? It's
1: a great question, and I'm going to say something now that's totally speculative. In the aftermath of Mitzvah Yonatan, as you referred to it, Malcolm, the French, the Germans, and remember the debacle of Munich that cost us 11 innocent lives, the Americans, all of them, in the aftermath of of July 4th, 1976, they created these elite military units, what we would call anti-terror units. In other words, Sayeret Matkal, that today everybody knows, at that time Sayeret Matkal was classified. No one knew the name Ehud Barak, Yoni Netanyahu, Shaul Mofaz, no one knew any of these names. It's all classified. But the concept of Sayeret Matkal, that was duplicated by all major Western nations. And in fact, uh, you know, the the famous quote, when Yitzhak Rabin, who was Prime Minister at the time, at 5 a.m. Israel time, which was 10 p.m. Saturday night in America, He called up President Gerald R. Ford, and he said, you know, Mr. President, I understand you've you've probably heard of the there's rumors going on, because the BBC was already reporting something at that point. And he said, I apologize, this is something that was top secret, I want to share with you. They're not home, they're they're in international water, so we think they're going to be okay. We have very positive reports, this is what happened. I'll fill you in when we know everything. And there's like a, a silent pause. And President Ford responded to Yitzhak Rabin, who was very nervous about this because America was a good friend and they hadn't shared anything with them. And he said to to the prime minister, "Mr. Prime Minister, I want to thank you for giving the United States of America the greatest birthday present we could have ever asked for." Mm. Now remember, the whole world, Queen England herself, who we revolted from, the whole Western world was there in the United States to celebrate with President Ford in America, the 200th birthday, of the bicentennial. Right. What did he mean by that statement? The last, They felt that the last country who'd stood up to terrorism, Israel, now had capitulated. In fact, on Wednesday afternoon, in those days, the New York Post had an afternoon paper. Right. Wednesday afternoon's paper came out and said in big, bold, black letters, like only the New York Post can do, Israel surrenders. Israel surrenders. Why? Because it was the last country that now had buckled and capitulated to terrorism. And what Ford was saying to Robin is, thank God someone is willing to stand up. Now the the skies of the world, human citizens have the ability to... The the terrorists don't control the airways. They don't control the skies. Someone who stood up to them. And, and, And in the aftermath of that, America, Germany, France, all of these countries they basically duplicated the concept of, say, matkal That's why I think today, to a certain degree, we're actually in, in a better place because countries are prepared
0: for this kind of a thing. Hmm, interesting. Plus, of course, the whole, and I'm not saying this to be funny, the whole social media aspect of it would certainly lend itself to be a much different type of situation today than it was 41 years ago. Uh, that we could analyze for hours, frankly, in terms of uh, how, how the instantaneous communication uh, you know, would, would make it a much different story. Uh, Rabbi Weil, greatly appreciated remembering Entebbe is a very important thing for us, for our community, and certainly for our children. 41 years ago next week, 4th of July, 1976, the rescue at Entebbe, which will uh, be which will leave its mark for a long, long time on the Jewish world and really the world in general. Rabbi Stephen Weil is, of course, the uh, Senior Managing Director at the OU. Thank you so much for the time and for helping us remember on this Thursday morning.
1: It's always a privilege and an honor. And thank you for everything you do for the community
0: now. I greatly appreciate that. That was my conversation with Rabbi Stephen Weil about the raid on Entebbe. We celebrate 41 years since that incredible, miraculous day uh, during this week. Fourth of July, 1976 is when it took place. Uh, We continue now with uh, Robin Meyerson and Rabbi Elchanan Zon, the topic of cremation, which, uh, unbeknownst to many of us, is a very, very big topic in the Jewish world in the United States. Uh, was our topic recently on JM and the AM. Rabbi uh, Rabbi Elchanan Zon and Robin Meyerson addressed it. Here's that conversation on JM Rewind here at the Nachum Siegel Network. There's a book out. It's entitled From This World to the Next, Amazing True Stories About Jewish Burial and the Afterlife. It's edited by uh, Rosalie Saltzman and Robin Meyerson. And from what I am told, it is a... um, it's an important book for a variety of reasons, including making the community, our community worldwide, and specifically in the United States, aware of some of the things that happen once someone passes from this world. Uh, to help us address all of this, Robin Meyerson is with us live via telephone. She's one of the editors of From This World to the Next. Robin, good morning to you. Good morning. And Rabbi Elchanan Zone who has been a guest of ours before and serves as president of the National Association of Heber Kedisha. He is with us live via Telephone or by zone. An honor to have you back on the air. Good morning and welcome to JM in the AM. Good morning and thank you. Always a pleasure. Much appreciated. I appreciate that. Robin, tell us about the book. Why was it written and uh, what will we learn from it? Well
3: fifty percent of Americans are choosing cremation and we estimate about forty percent of Jews are choosing cremation. So we we wrote the book to share with make it a tool for people so that they could give it out to people and talk have a conversation about the next world. It's easy to do and it's easy to read. And we wanted people to know that this is something that's happening in in, it's affecting all Jews all over the the
0: country. It's
3: not just Go
0: ahead. We'll talk with Arizona in a moment about the statistics and the practicalities. But what does it mean? Amazing true stories about Jewish burial. I mean, what 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 can be amazing uh, about that stage of life?
3: So we have collected stories from people all over the world of where they've had um, dreams about people from the next world, or they've had miracles happen on the art side. Um, babies that have been born, um, on the yard sites of situations where they've intervened and stopped the cremation and instead convinced the family to have a burial. So we collected these stories to show the readers that there is another world. It is real. And, um, and, and to have that conversation with people, to have it as a starter. Uh, and what, we've had... Go ahead. We've had over 700 requests so far for the book from all over the place, um, People wanting to give out multiple copies to people, and it's free. It's actually free for people who want to share it with, um, with, in their or in their in their cure of organization and then if it, it is also for sale, but um, the, how, the sale how long, How, how for long did burial?
0: How long has it been out there?
3: It's only been out for a few months.
0: and uh, how do people get it?:
3: They can get it on the NASC website at uh, www.nasdk.org.
0: Uh, from This World to the Next, it's called Amazing True Stories About Jewish Burial and the Afterlife. Check it out. Uh, it is uh, edited by Rosalie Saltzman, and one of our guests, Robin Meyerson, is with us live via telephone. All right, Rabbi, Rabbi Zone, uh, Robin used the expression, I should say the statistic rather. Robin used a statistic that it's around 40% of our Jewish community nationwide is opting for cremation uh, as opposed to a proper burial or any type of burial. Uh, first of all, is that accurate? I
4: believe that's accurate. Uh, I think in the New York area, it's much lower than that. Uh, there have been uh, articles written that question that statistic, and it was based on the fact that funeral directors who are involved in the Jewish funeral industry will say they don't see those numbers, but that's because, uh, first of all, those uh, people are in the north uh, northeast where the numbers are much lower. Secondly, uh, the people who are choosing cremation are more often than not not going to Jewish funeral homes at all. They're just uh, looking uh, out there and uh, doing the shopping, and you can get a cremation for $599 if you know where to look. Um, so they're not really getting a clear statistic. In the New York area, we estimate about 20%, maybe a little more than that, 25%. But When you go out west or you go south, Uh, it's as much as 70% in parts of California and Arizona, in Florida and uh, Texas. Our estimate is about 50%. So altogether, I think 40% is a fairly uh, accurate number.
0: And uh, cost and, excuse the expression, efficiency are the primary reasons (laughs) for it?
4: Ecology uh, is another, um, which is really a myth because there's a tremendous amount of carbon that's put into the air when you do this. There's mercury, there's all kinds of other things. Uh, But yes, we just actually did a little brochure called uh, Jewish Burial Equals Green Burial. Uh, because Jewish people do not get embalmed and there's no formaldehyde that's put into the ground. We don't get buried in metal caskets um, and we get buried in caskets made of the cheapest wood. There's no real loss in, 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 in that. And of course in Israel we have burial and even in some places here without caskets at all. Uh, so Jewish burial is really green burial, but ecology is a big thing. Um, there is also uh, efficiency. We live in a world where people are very mobile and people don't want to burden children People want to be able to have uh, urns among all their children there, there's a lot going on out there culturally it's it's the thing right now it's the progressive thing to do uh, it makes sense financially and, and that's what's really driving this and unfortunately our own people um, are not knowledgeable about the importance of what it means not just from a religious perspective but first of all our, our own people most of them who are not uh, traditional did not have a yeshiva background don't even know that Jews believe in an afterlife somehow an afterlife sounds like a Christian thing certainly a Trias resurrection is something that they don't believe we believe in. And if you believe in Chiesa Mason, the natural thing to do is to get buried, so that you return from the earth in which you were placed. Okay, so this is is what's driving this, and uh, this book, we hope, will have a very serious impact in helping Jews understand that, yes, we believe in an afterlife, and yes, it's important, but there are a lot of other reasons besides religious reasons, why family uh, closure, family identity, family continuity, respect for ourselves uh, as the container of a neshama. Again, belief in a, in a soul. Uh, if we're the containers of a neshama, of something that special, we should be given respect, just as you wouldn't burn a an ark after the Torah was removed, we wouldn't burn a body uh, after the neshama was removed. Rabbi Elchanan
0: Zon is with us. Um, the 40% or whatever, you know, it, the, the actual statistic is near that... Um, it's likely the highest in American Jewish history, right? For the reasons you described,
4: absolutely. Until about uh, I'd say twenty-five or thirty years ago, cremation was something only in the very, very progressive, liberal community. Uh, Jews uh, never cremated; it was it was kind of a uh, taboo. Right. So, so now, so now
0: we're back at the stage where we have to educate people why it's so important to have a proper Jewish burial.
4: Absolutely. As someone who chose uh, cremation said to me, they Googled it, and they didn't find in the Torah any prohibition that says, do not cremate. Of course, they overlooked the fact that it says you should bury, and that burial means in the ground and the return uh, from dust you are, and to dust you shall return. But uh, that was overseen, and many people don't realize uh, how significant this is uh, from so many different uh, perspectives of our faith.
0: Um, and, uh, you know, as, as people are less and less educated, unfortunately, as you described earlier, in our community, uh, this argument is going to have to be made. You, you just started for us the, the argument for proper burial with the sources, which is, you know, very well understood. But often that's not enough for people. If we have people listening right now who have made this decision— uh, to go for a cremation, or, ha- or know of family members who have already made this decision. Is-, is there anything else or anything more you can say in this public forum that might get them to reconsider?
4: Well, I think it's uh, important for their family, for closure. I think it's also important that they could visit our, our, our website, which is uh, peacefulreturn.org, uh, www.peacefulreturn.org, one word, which has a lot of information, information. Uh, it also, they can visit us at NASC.org, uh, which Robin mentioned before, and I think it's very important to get the word out to our people who are knowledgeable, that if they know of people who are choosing cremation, this is really the Mace Mitzvah of today. The uh, When we look to bury someone who is going to be cremated or convince them, the time is not after they've died and the cremation is scheduled. The time is to have an open discussion, which is why this book is so important, because it gives us an opportunity. But the opportunities are there in many different ways. If we're a rabbi or anyone at a funeral or at a Shiva house, why not take a minute to speak about how fortunate this person was to have had the beauty and the respect and the meaning of a traditional Jewish burial uh, for whatever reason they choose, whether it's because it's better ecologically or better, it's good, better for family, what it means to be part of a family plot. This is the history of the family. We're not just something to be dispersed on the uh, Atlantic or, or Pacific Ocean, which many people do. Um, and this is uh, something that's extremely Uh, opportune time to do. Uh, Also, if someone like Joan Rivers passes away and gets cremated, hey, there's an opportunity to discuss this. Uh, Say, why would a woman like that ever want to be cremated? Cremation was something we never did. Uh, So there are a lot of opportunities, and we really have a need to reach out to those people around us in a very nice way, in a sensitive way, to open the conversation. And uh, if they need arguments that can be made, we will be happy to help them in any which way they can contact us through those websites or our number, which is 718-847-6280. And we will be very, very happy to offer them resources, brochures, and all kinds of other ideas that they could work with.
0: All right. Um, the, uh, the websites that we're recommending, uh, peacefulreturn.com, peacefulreturn.com, NASC, N-A-S-C-K.org. That's n a s ck.org and again the phone number is 718-847-6280 718-847-6280 the book is called from this world to the next amazing true stories about jewish burial in the afterlife robin myerson's one of the editors robin after listening to rabbi zone's presentation is there anything else you'd like to add uh, that might help people uh, consider proper jewish burial
3: yeah, I'd just like to say that, you know, this is something that we all can do. You don't necessarily have to be a rub or a doctor or a chaplain. We just have to speak from the heart and, and ask people to put this in writing. It's absolutely crit- critical to put it in writing what their wishes are, and, and, and that's something that we can all do. We can all have that conversation and to use this book as a starting point.
0: No question about it. All right, um, peacefulreturn.com, NASC, N-A-S-C-K.org. 718-847-6280. The book is called From This World to the Next. Uh, Robin Meyerson, I thank you. Rabbi Zone, I thank you and continue your amazing work in this area.
4: Thank you very much for having us. Have a very good day.
0: That was my conversation with Robin Meyerson and Rabbi Elchanan Zone on the topic of cremation that took place recently on JM in the AM. Uh, next up on JM Rewind, Rabbi Yoshua Fast, the co-founder of Nefesh B'Nefesh, speaks with us about the Bonet Sion Awards and the incredible flight this week. Uh, to Israel, hundreds of Olim from North America heading to Israel with Nefesh Benefesh. Rabbi Yoshua Josh Fass, co founder of Nefesh Benefesh, is next on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, the Bonate Sion Awards that we've spoken about on these uh, airwaves uh, were actually uh, presented to the list of people that, um, again, for this year was chosen by the judges, by those who evaluate. Uh, who's uh, worthy, so to speak, of the Bonit Award. They look for uh, those from Anglo countries, those from English-speaking countries who've made Aliyah and have made quite a contribution to Israeli society over the years. With us to speak about this amazing concept and uh, tell us about yesterday is the one and only Rabbi Yoshua Fass. He is the co-founder of Nefesh ben with us live via telephone from Jerusalem. Rabbi Fass, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you, sir. So much.
5: Great to talk to you.
0: Yesterday, I would assume again, because you've done this before, the Bonation award ceremony was a spectacular day.
5: Yesterday was really beautiful. Yeah, I think um, I think everyone would agree that this Bonation ceremony was by far the best one we've had over the last four years. Um, just uh, it was. Laced with a tremendous amount of emotion, and uh, it was a very tightly run, very professionally executed. And people, the guests, were very moved, and the, the recipients were extremely honored and, uh, and received uh, the respect and acknowledgment that was due to them. And it was really a great, a great day in the, in the Knesset.
0: Generally, I guess for obvious reasons, those who are cited with these awards have been in Israel for quite a while. Is that correct?
5: Well, some of them have been here for a while, and some of them made Aliyah recently as 1997 or 1982, and even uh, the younger generation came in 2012. And, um, so it's, it's really a mix, some from the beginning of uh, establishment in the state of Israel to some individuals who have been
0: here for less than 10 years. Even less than 10 years are sometimes uh, awarded the Bonitia? I didn't realize that. That's yeah, one. Beth Steinberg made Aliyah in 2006. Oh so it was just 10 years and she was uh she was given the award and um how was that was that an emotional uh, part of the ceremony
5: It it was it was it was great. We we it's a lot of times sometimes you go to c- ceremonies that honor individuals and it's 90% about the organization or institution and 10% or 10 minutes allocated for the recipients themselves, and uh, I really wanted when we started this four years ago, four and a half years ago, I really wanted the ceremony to be focused solely on the honorees and very little about nefesh. Um, so the ceremony is broken up in three different parts. In the beginning, I speak about each of the recipients on a more personal level, right. um, talking about their qualities and the midot, not just on the their achievements, but what. What uh, they reflect and the, the ideals that they reflect, and hopefully what we should learn from them. Then, the middle of the ceremony, after that's done, we have a couple of speaks, speeches, and then we have a video which actually highlights them communicating a message that we pre-taped and slice into a bi- very beautiful video. And then, the third is the official recognition where they're called up to the Knesset stage and given by a few by us and by Knesset members uh, their prize. So And then one representative, one recipient, re- speaks on behalf of all the recipients. So you have an hour. It's, it's an hour and eight-minute ceremony. It's tight, and a lot's covered. And the recipient, the honorees, feel that so much of the attention throughout the entire hour is focused on them, on their contributions, on their achievements, what they've done, and the people who they are. And it's, uh, it's very emotional. There, there are moments that... that uh, People are very moved
0: by it. I really should run through the names, which I will in a minute. Rabbi Fass is with us from Israel, and by the way, for those of us who are either New York or USA centric, we should realize that nominees and awardees do come from other English-speaking countries as well, right? It's not, it's not just Correct. not just this area that's being represented. But you've you've met plenty of great Jewish heroes from other countries, such as Australia and Canada, and New Zealand, and South Africa, and the UK, who would believe that they're from all over the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, we dominate, though. America <laughs> dominates. There you go. <laughs> like Olympics, we dominate own recipients. He's still chanting USA, even from his office in Jerusalem. Uh, the honorees yeah. this <laughs> year include Professor Benjamin Korn, head of the Institute of Radiotherapy at Ichelov Hospital in the field of science and medicine, Beth Steinberg, director and co-founder of Shutaf Inclusion Program, uh, Rabbi Chaim Bravendorf, and we spoke with him on the air. What an amazing conversation that was. Founder of Rosh Hashiva of Professor Gerald Steinberg, president of NGO Monitor and professor of political studies at Bar-Ilan University in the field of Israel advocacy. Yoram Yoram Ranan, contemporary Jewish artist in the field of culture, arts, and sports. Professor Alice Shalvi for decades of inspiring contributions in shaping the status of women in Israel through education and advocacy. And Professor uh, Eliezer Jaffe for his accomplishments in not-for-profit and philanthropic giving, raising awareness and support for Israeli citizens in need. Plus, there's a Young Leadership Prize, Captain Libby Weiss, head of the social media department for the IDF, and Scott Neese, founder and executive director of Israel Lacrosse Association. I think we spoke about this last time you were on, that lacrosse is now actually making its mark in Israel, and you recognize the person, I guess, essentially responsible for it, right?
5: Yeah, Scott Neese is bringing the international championship lacrosse to to Israel. Pretty amazing, I'll tell you. uh, There there were some moments that really um, stood out. You know, Professor Jaffe uh, passed away. Um, the, the shloshim was just the beginning of the week, mm. and uh, he was very touched and honored by by receiving the bonnet. and When we told and notified him, we actually photoed, photo, photo photographed him and videotaped him, and the family just came from uh, shloshim right before the the ceremony, and they received they received his honor uh, posthumously. Wow! And. Uh, And he had, uh, Professor Jaffe did tremendous things, uh, revolutionized uh, loan associations and even uh, international adoptions in Israel, a remarkable individual. I met him 15 years ago when we started Nefesh, and I had really the distinct privilege of sitting with him and learning from him and getting guidance from him. And when I went to the Shiva house, there was a quote that uh, he wrote in one of his books that the family put on the wall, and actually it's the inscription on his Matzeva, and uh, in English, I'll do it in English for your readership. It's uh, life is a loan that one day we'll have to repay it with interest, and that interest is to make the world a little better than the one we entered. Um, and uh, just epitomize the person who he was, and it was basically the undercurrent theme throughout the day of what individuals have done with their lives and how they've impacted our lives and our land um, a bit better than the one that they've entered. And uh, that was very emotional. Um, also another emotional moment was Yoram Ra'anan. Yoram Ra'anan is a world-famous uh, Israeli artist, made Aliyah, early 70s. Um, and last year during the, the fires, uh, the fires that engulfed Beit Meir,
2: right.
5: his, uh, his studio, which had 40 years' worth of art and equipment and catalogs, 2,000 pieces of original art, went, uh, went up in flames. Wow. And uh, he, he was all over the news because he, he accepted it with such grace and humility and resiliency of spirit. And it was just an incredible lesson for all, everyone in Israel during that time because it could have shattered an individual, and he, he just accepted it accepted it as, you know, God's will and, and thank God he said, Thank God I have the opportunity to rebuild. I'm alive. Wow. I have talent. And uh, it was just remarkable to give him give him the prize. Even before we went on stage he said to me, he said, Rabbi, when do you think it's appropriate or if it is appropriate if I can say Shahyanu? Oh and I was like, you can say Shechianu. <laughs> whatever I you mean, want. <laughs> yeah, whatever you want, my friend. I mean, how the, the – the, and I said to, in a speech when I was – I said, Do you, the lessons that you've taught us, forget about the art and representing Tanakh in, 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 in Israeli art or in international art, Jewish art, but the lessons that you've taught us of just priorities and, and, and you know, and. Kabbalat, Ratzon Hashem, and God's divine will. It's just incredible. Wow. And just such a gentle spirit and such a neshama, uh, just such a gentle soul. It was just, it was really beautiful. And, and we actually, Sylvan Adams, who is some remarkable, also a remarkable man who sponsored the Bonet Awards, who made Aliyah a year and a half ago from Canada, and he just really wants to champion and showcase what we're doing in Israel. Remarkable individual. So we wanted to present Sylvan, Uh, an award, Uh, just not an award, we want to give him a gift. So we we took one, we got one of Yoramra Anand's paintings. (laughs) It's called Dreamers. And we gave it to Sylvan. And it was just an amazing, touching moment. This is prior to all of us, all the honorees going on to stage, in a private reception, just for Sylvan to be recognized for his contributions to this ceremony, using a painting by Yom Ra'anan about dreaming and thinking bigger and, uh, and pushing ourselves, you know, returning to Zion. It was very, very moving.
0: Unbelievable. What a moment so that throughout, must have been.
5: And, and also Alice Shalvi getting the lifetime achievement, and, and she's a remarkable woman. And the moment she got onto stage, um, the entire, entire audience of 450 people uh, gave her a standing ovation and just... Uh, it was, uh, it, it's so nice to be in a position of, of recognizing the accomplishments of others. It, it's very humbling, and it's so rewarding. Oh, my, I just, it's, it's one of the, you know, you, you work hard, you help, you facilitate the dreams of individuals, but to be in a position of giving honor to people who've really done something with their lives and are continuing to do something, it's just, uh, it's really humbling, and it's such a privilege. I can't. Can it? there are not enough words to express uh how satisfying it is to give people that to showcase what people have done and give them that spotlight in front of peers and family members. Mm. It's just really rewarding. And just it's the most the nicest thing is after the ceremony. After the ceremony we tell our honorees that they should go on stage one at a time. When everyone's leaving, all the guests leave, they can go on stage with their family members. And they can get a, an official photograph to mark the day. Right. Yeah, the Knesset logo there. It's yeah. very, it's very, it's very. Uh, That's wonderful. Very impressive. It's very impressive. For people, some people have never been to the Knesset, but right. to be honored in the Knesset in an official Knesset ceremony. It's a this big deal for them, and just see the families. It's just awesome. Uh, Rabbi their family got up there; <laughs> dozens of people around him. It's just it's 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 so so nice to see uh, to see the the families surround the, the honorees, and just the, the diversity of what the families look like and the generations in Israel planted here. Um, people who've come here in the beginning of the state of Israel and seeing already, you know, fourth generation others who are new and just seeing their, you know, family and children. It's great. Rabbi
0: Rabbi Fass is with us from Israel. Yesterday the Bonation recipients were awarded. The ceremony took place at the Knesset. Pretty amazing. Now you have a big week because uh, you know where you're going to be this coming Monday? It's crazy. (laughs) It's crazy talk because we're all, some
5: staff's leaving tomorrow, and Thursday I'm leaving Saturday night, Motei Shabbat. We have a plane that's taking off next. Uh, our first charter flight is on Monday, July third, and uh, and it's we've never had uh, such a proximity between the Bonetion, which is tremendously logistically um, tedious, uh, so close to our charter flight, which is equally um, uh, complicated to to pull off.
0: I think it's also so, one of your earliest charter flights uh, in terms of the summer. Yes, yeah, usually it's correct. a little later, right?
5: So, Correct.
0: So, so, J- so we're working hard. We're working hard. So July third, this coming Monday, uh, hundreds will gather at JFK Airport. The first charter flight of the summer of 2017 will be heading to Israel. I would assume that this uh, plane, like all of them, are filled with incredible families, some wonderful singles, and people who are going to be heading to the IDF will be on the plane. And uh, as yeah. you as you usually get a very nice diverse mix of uh, of people from all around this country.
5: Yeah, it reflects our um, our nation, and uh, we have 200 plus people on the plane, full plane, and it's going to be fun, and it'll be inspiring, very emotional, and we start the wave of the summer. Most aliyah from North America comes during these ten weeks, right, the beginning of July until a little bit into September. That's when you have almost 70, 80 percent of aliyah. We have 3,000 people coming during these weeks, so it is a lot a lot of people you know I'm I'm a little jealous of the summer even though we have a, a great summer of welcoming welcoming Olim. We have all these families vacationing and planning their day trips. and, <laughs> and Are the families of all the Nefesh staff uh, like hunkering down and saying goodbye to their family members? We'll regroup in September.
0: We'll see you for the Chagim, they're telling everybody. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> Basically, Just remind me of your name when we
5: reconnect.
0: Rabbi Fass is with us. Monday it takes off, the first charter flight of this season from, the, uh, from JFK to Israel. Uh, filled with an amazing plane load of people, heroes, Jewish heroes, are going to be heading to Israel on Aliyah. And how many, I wonder are I fast, how many of those on the plane this coming Monday will be awarded or at least nominated at some point for a Bonazion Award? It could happen, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, unbelievable. And the fact that the Bonazion Award happens, uh, that ceremony happens each year, should be an encouragement uh, to everybody who wonders about being recognized and what type of role they have when they do make Aliyah. Uh, you know, when people uh, move to Israel this coming Monday, as an example, when they move to Israel from certain communities, the communities do so well by them, meaning that the places they're leaving from uh, throw these wonderful parties, great kiddishes, uh, in some cases, maybe even an award banquet, you know, to recognize those who've been so helpful to their own community. So a lot of people out there are uh, are really separating not only from family but from their own communities here and moving on with all their abilities to help build the state of Israel. It's something that should not be taken lightly, that's for sure.
5: And for, and for any individual communities that know of a community member that's making Aliyah, the more, the more support, the more love, the more embrace of their decision will help really uh, support them during this move. The move is stressful, yeah. but the w- move is also wonderful, and, and it's even more majestic when they their pride, their sense of pride and sense of love of uh, and support from their from their communities. So anyone who's listening, give an Ola a hug, <laughs> give an Ola an Aliyah, give an Ola an honor Up. do a kiddush. just Up. do something to upgrade. make them feel that. You know, <laughs> I, I, I was going to say upgrade the kiddish. <laughs> exactly, upgrade a little little kogel this time. Exactly. Um, just just that they feel that that they represent the ideals of the communities. That this is this is the product of our communities. This is the pride of our communities. This is the success of our education. This is the success of the products of religious Zionism or Zionism throughout the communities. And so that they feel that they have, there's wind that's helping them travel to uh, to Israel, to our homeland.
0: Yeah, no question about it. Everybody could watch, uh, I guess it would be here uh, late Monday night, right? Yeah, here would be late Monday night where people could actually watch the ceremony on the website, nbn.org.il, and everyone lands at Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel. We'll remind everybody about that, of course. Uh, that is a, that's another thing that has attracted people from uh, all around the world, uh, your ceremonies and celebrations that take place as the plane lands in Israel, which we've been part of. And that's also a, an incredible way to show support. And then the email, your friends, let them know you saw them and how happy you are uh, that you were able to share in the big simcha. Yep. Rabbi Fass, I thank you. I wish you a gesundem zimmer, as they say, a very happy, thank healthy so much. <laughs> and successful suburb. Uh, a lot of good work ahead from your staff and a tremendous work that goes a very far way uh, in securing the future of the Jewish people in the state of Israel, and it's much appreciated by Jews worldwide. Kolakavod you. Thank
5: you so much for allowing me to share this with with your audience.
0: A pleasure. Kavod and we'll see you soon, Vezrat Hashem. There he is, Rabbi Josh Fass, co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh. You know what to do, everybody. If you're inspired by these conversations, it's very simple nbn.org.il, nbn.org.il. As we get closer to Monday, we'll remind you about the uh, the live broadcast, which you can watch late Monday night when everyone lands Tuesday morning in Israel. And uh, we'll bring you plenty, coverage, plenty of coverage, I should say, throughout the summer of the Nefesh Benefesh activities. This is the time of year that is most likely the most difficult for Rabbi Fass and his staff, but the most exciting for the Jewish people, to say the least. That was my conversation with Rabbi Fass of Nefesh Benefesh. Uh, and that is uh, yet another great edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Thanks so much for listening in. Make sure to be tuned in next week as we continue with great programming, wonderful NSN programming here at the Nahum Siegel Network.
6: fez os man sim khatinu schmat Shreena Terra, mea yo ma se. Hayo, so hart, hala. Hayo, so hart, vila. Shreet ish lachet malachet, do shim, Tahatan, ayomazeti et my